The time is 1901. The 20th century has just begun. Progress is everywhere, but the United States is still ruled by Wall Street, for from there the economic pulse of the country is taken. Big business is all-powerful, as it always has been, and there is merger after merger taking place as big business gets bigger. The first billion-dollar company has just been formed, as the United States Steel Company has just been put together by the greatest financier of his day, J. Pierpont Morgan. This excursion in history will now deal with the first attempts of the government to curb the awesome power of these financial titans. The railroads and the steel companies are running the nation, and in the true form of social Darwinism, the idea that only the fittest shall survive in business, the great railroad tycoons are competing against each other, each trying to dispose of his competitor and to become even more powerful himself. Two railroad tycoons who were always trying to do each other in were James J. Hill of the Great Northern Railroad and Edward H. Harriman, owner of the Union Pacific. Each man would do anything to gain control of the other's railroad and become the top man in the rail business. Hill's Railroad, the Great Northern, ran from Seattle, Washington to St. Paul, Minnesota. Harriman's Railroad ran from Ogden, Utah to Omaha, Nebraska. It should be noted that neither railroad reached Chicago, Illinois, which at that time was the hub of the nation. Eastern railroads met Western railroads there. The railroad which connected the gigantic Western railroads to Chicago was the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, commonly known as the CB&Q. It was the one that brought the Western giants to Chicago, all of them, the Great Northern, the Northern Pacific, and the Union Pacific. All of them had to use the CB&Q rails to reach Chicago. One day in 1901, Hill finally saw a way to get rid of Harriman once and forever. If he could get control of the CB&Q, he could then refuse to allow Harriman the right to ship his goods over this railroad to Chicago. If Harriman couldn't get his goods to Chicago, well, that would put him out of business. Once Harriman went bankrupt, Hill would buy up the defunct railroad for a song, and that would be the end of one of his hated competitors. To get control of the CB&Q means that you're going to have to have lots of money to buy out the owners of that railroad, and Hill simply did not have that kind of money. But wait, there was a man in New York City that probably had that kind of money, and he might be willing to help Hill get rid of Harriman. The man's name? J. Pierpont Morgan, the Titan of Wall Street. So off to see J. P. Morgan went Hill. There he divulged his plan to get rid of Harriman. Would Mr. Morgan be interested in helping bring about this destruction of Harriman? Morgan, who owned many things, also owned the Northern Pacific Railroad. Yes, this seemed to be a good idea. So, between Hill and Morgan, a deal was arranged and the CB&Q was bought up and merged with Morgan's Northern Pacific Railroad. Once Morgan merged his lines with the CB&Q, Harriman 
for all intents and purposes, was beaten. The merger of these two railroads against Harriman would certainly drive him out of business. Morgan now capitalized his new railroad at some 1,559,000 shares of stock. In order to finance the deal to buy out the CB&Q, Morgan had to sell stock in this newly put together Northern Pacific Railroad. Morgan now retained 30% of the stock for himself and the rest he put on the open market for sale. For those who know big business and high finance, you know that 30% of the stock gives you what is called operating control. This means that you have more stock than any other single person. And since you have more stock than any other person, you have the right to run the railroad. You elect yourself with your stock as the president of the railroad, and then you run it. Once Morgan had put things in order, he decided to go to France on vacation. Hill went back to Seattle, Washington, and watched the stock market prices of Harriman's Railroad go down. It would only be a matter of time before he would wipe him out. But Harriman, who was beaten and licked, refused to quit without a fight. Harriman went to New York to see a man by the name of Jacob Schiff, who owned the investment house of Kuhn Laub and Company. Next to Morgan's great financial empire, Schiff's company was next. He had always been second to Morgan. So it was to this man, Jacob Schiff, that Harriman went. Once in Schiff's office, he told his tale of woe, of how Morgan and Hill had teamed up against him and were going to do him in. Well, what can I do, asked Jacob Schiff. Harriman then stated his plan. I was thinking, he said, that it would take about $78 million to buy up 50% of the stock in this new railroad of Morgan and Hills. If we could buy up 50% of that stock, we could steal their own railroad right from under their noses. I don't have that kind of money, but between the two of us, I thought we might be able to pull one off on these two fiends. Jacob Schiff thought for a few moments, then a smile came over his face. Yes, yes, it might just teach that big windbag Morgan a lesson. Yes, he would do it. So he and Harriman <laughs> mapped their strategy on how they would wrest control of the newly merged Northern Pacific Railroad from the hands of Hill and Morgan. What they decided to do was to send buyers onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and buy up all the Northern Pacific stock they could, and as quietly as possible. On April 15, 1901, they began to buy up the stock. No one seemed to take any particular notice that the price of the stock was going up. On April 22nd, the price of the stock was at $101 per share. By the 29th of April, the stock had gone up to $119 per share. Boy, oh boy, that was a good price for Northern Pacific stock, and the House of Morgan decided to sell some of the 30% which they owned at this price. Remember, this 30% is what gave Morgan his controlling interest. Then, when the price of the stock dropped back down, they planned to buy back the needed stock at this lower price 
and make themselves a neat piece of change. Little did they know to whom they were selling the stock or for what purpose. Hill was the first to get suspicious that something was going wrong. Why? Why would he get suspicious? Well, for one reason, 500,000 shares of Northern Pacific stock had changed hands in the past three days. Who was buying all this stock? Yep, it had to be. He didn't know how or when, but he did know that it had to be Harriman behind this somewhere. So Hill headed toward New York to see Mr. Morgan and relate to him his fear that he felt someone was trying to buy up 50% of the stock in the Northern Pacific Railroad and take their controlling interest away from them. When Hill got to New York City, he found that Morgan was in France on vacation. He sent him a cable message at $5 per word, informing him of the danger. Morgan was astonished. He couldn't believe that anyone would challenge him, the great Morgan. The only one he knew that would take any great delight in seeing him suffer was Jacob Schiff, and that was enough for Morgan. He cabled back. When the stock market opened on Monday morning, Northern Pacific stock was to be bought by the house of Morgan at any price. As the big bell rang out across the stock exchange floor on Monday, May the 6th, the fight between these two titans for control of the Northern Pacific started. Little investors on the market who were unaware that a fight was going on between these two giants would be caught up in this vortex and hurt if something went wrong with their investment. But what cared the great titans of Wall Street? Up, up, up went the price of Northern Pacific stock from 121 that morning to 127 at closing time. The battle raged on as Tuesday's trading got underway. It opened at 127 and a half, and by the end of the morning, Northern Pacific was at 133. By 1 p.m. it had reached 140 and closed that day at 143 and a half. The whole market was going mad. Northern Pacific was a good buy, but it wasn't that good. Now onto the stock market comes the speculator. These are people that make money by promising to deliver stock to a buyer at a certain price within 48 hours. That is to say, you agree to deliver 5,000 shares of Northern Pacific stock to a certain buyer in 48 hours at, let us say, $140 per share. 5,000 shares at $140 per share means you would pay $700,000 for that stock. Well... Now, let us assume that the day after you have agreed to deliver the stock at $140 per share, the price of the stock has dropped to $120 per share. You buy the stock up at that price, which would be $600,000, deliver it to the buyer at $700,000, which he has agreed to pay, and you have made yourself a neat profit of $100,000. Not bad. But... There is also the possibility of the stock going up. What happens if, within the 48-hour time limit, the price of the stock has gone up to, let us say, $160 per share? That would mean that you would have to buy the stock at a price of $800,000 and sell it at an agreed $700,000, and that would be quite a loss. But the speculators, or shorts as they are sometimes called, knew that Northern Pacific stock was way overpriced, and it had to fall. 
Certainly, it had to go down before long. So the speculators, or shorts, moved into the market and promised to deliver the stock at $140 per share within 48 hours. Wednesday, trading once again got underway, and much to the disgust of the shorts, Northern Pacific stock opened at $155 per share. What was going on? Who was buying all the stock? Still, no one knew that the two great titans were fighting it out. All anyone knew was that the price was going up and Northern Pacific was a good stock. By noon, the price was at $161 per share, and it closed at the end of the day at $180 per share. The shorts were just a little sick by the end of Wednesday. They had just seen over $200,000 of their money go down the drain. Oh well, maybe the price would drop tomorrow. They still had a few hours before they had to deliver the stock to the buyers. Thursday, May the 9th, the traditional trading bell once again rang over the floor and all eyes were on Northern Pacific stock. What would it open at? It opened at $200 per share. Speculators gasped. Most of them were being wiped out. By noon, the price had gone to $320 per share, and by 1 p.m. it had jumped to $650 per share. Then came the crusher at about 1.30 p.m. The price hit the sky, $1,000 per share. It was now that a truce was called between Morgan and Schiff. Both agreed that they should work out some kind of an agreement, and so they did. An agreement was worked out. A new gigantic railroad network would be put together and they would all share in the running of that railroad. The name of this new company would be the Northern Securities Company. The fight was over. But the fight between these two titans had scared the nation out of its wits. Not only that, it had wiped out many small men on the market. The country on the whole was downright indignant. True, the stock market bounced back quickly, but millions of small investors had been endangered by two huge combines which were ruthlessly battling against each other. And the little man, John Q. Public, was caught in the middle. It wasn't over yet, however. The story of the founding of the Northern Securities Company has one final twist left to it. In February of 1902, while Mr. J.P. Morgan was having a dinner party, his phone rang. The butler answered it, and he was informed by the members of the press that they wanted to talk to Mr. Morgan. The butler replied that Mr. Morgan was having dinner and could not be disturbed. But the members of the press were persistent, and finally Mr. Morgan left his dinner guest and came to the phone. He was puffing on one of those pure Havana cigars as he picked up the phone. As he listened to what was being told him, his eyes opened wide and the cigar fell out of his mouth. He couldn't believe the news he had just heard. The news was that the President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, had ordered his Attorney General Knox to bring antitrust proceedings against the Northern Securities Company, as it was their best opinion that the Northern Securities Company was in restraint of trade. It was like a thunderbolt. It had never, ever happened before. Up to this time in American history, big business had done what it wanted to do, and the federal government just stood by and did nothing. 
the old Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 had been passed only to satisfy progressive reformers, but no one ever took it serious that it would ever be used against big business. Morgan, visibly shaken, returned to his dinner guests and denounced Theodore Roosevelt for his ungentlemanly action. Morgan felt that if there was something that displeased the president, all he would have to do is to send his man to see Morgan's man, and they could work something out. As it was now, battle lines were drawn. It would be big business versus the government of the United States. The Northern Securities Company versus the United States was first tried in the United States Circuit Court in Minnesota. The decision was in favor of the government, but Morgan appealed it. And, finally, the case came before the Supreme Court. There before the Supreme Court, Morgan's lawyers, the best in the country, argued that the merger was legal according to the E.C. Knight decisions of 1895. In that case, the courts held that a monopoly of sugar refining was not subject to the antitrust laws. But that was in 1895. This was 1904. And the Supreme Court, by a five to four decision, held that the Northern Securities Company was in restraint of trade according to the provisions of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 and was thereby ordered to dissolve its interests. The Northern Securities Company was the first case ever successfully prosecuted under the terms of the Sherman Act. The public now became enchanted with its new young president. It was not the decision of the courts that mattered to the public. It was just the mere fact that the president had filed suit against big business that pleased them. The public had come to accept the idea that big business was all-powerful. The moral fervor of Roosevelt's denial of this was a thrilling change, and humanly enough, Almost everyone enjoyed watching the discomforts of the great magnets of Wall Street. The significance of the Northern Securities case, I think, is that President Roosevelt dramatically demonstrated that the federal government was no longer a complacent and automatic servant of big business interest to the nation. The days of laissez-faire, the idea of government hands off big business, were coming to an end. This was the people's government, and Roosevelt, if nobody else, would help them. It also brought forth a progressive movement. The government would now serve the public interest first. This did not mean that the government was against big business, but it did mean that it was going to take steps to control them. And one of the important steps to eliminate the abuses and injustices from the American scene had started.